the idea of wise men being right there at the manger is something that's not really supported by a close reading of the text because uh, uh, in scripture it, it appears that uh, when the wise men actually arrive uh, Jesus is no longer called an infant, he's called a child. And uh, at that time, it says that Mary and Joseph and uh, Jesus live in a house, uh, no longer in a, a room in the back of a stable, if you will. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Andreas Kostenberger. Andreas serves as the director of the Center for Biblical Studies and research professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the author of numerous books, including The First Days of Jesus, The Story of the Incarnation, which he co-authored with Alexander Stewart for Crossway. Today, Andreas and I discuss how to distinguish fact from fiction when it comes to the Christmas story. He shares his thoughts on the real date of Jesus' birth, talks about what was really going on with the wise men and the star, and explains some of the key Old Testament allusions and prophecies related to the coming of Israel's Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled every one of them. Let's get started. Andreas, thank you so much for joining us today on the Crossway Podcast. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So Christmas is just a couple days away, and I think many Christians often wonder whether or not Jesus was really born on December 25th. Uh, so what would you say to that? Well, um, I think the honest truth is that we uh, are not able to uh, determined with 100% certainty the exact date on which uh, Jesus was born. Uh, it was probably sometime in the fall or winter. Uh, there was another festival uh, celebrated uh, actually on uh, December 25th, the Roman Saturnalia. And so some people uh, believe that Christmas then became uh, the Christian uh, replacement, if you will, or the uh, the more appropriate answer to that uh, pagan festival. So is there uh, is there any chance there would have been snow on the ground when he was born? Or <laughs> we, <laughs> is that pretty much not not an option? That's a great question. Uh, probably on the on the distant mountains on the horizon, perhaps. But uh, you know, otherwise, as far as we know, the the climate uh, in and around Bethlehem there likely uh, was not snow on the ground. So that kind of uh, opens up to a broader issue. I think when it comes to Christmas, sometimes it can be hard for us to distinguish tradition, uh, like traditional ideas about Jesus's birth from what the Bible actually tells us about his birth. Are there any other examples of things that we've picked up from tradition that aren't necessarily the way it really was from Scripture? What sometimes has happened, um, as you alluded to, tradition and what the Bible explicitly says uh, were the events surrounding the birth of Christ are not always uh, perfectly aligned. You know, for instance, the way in which uh, other stories such as Santa Claus or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Jack Frost and so forth have become part of the hodgepodge of, of stories attached to to the Christmas season, I think that would be the, the first thing I would, I would say we'd need to be careful to to disentangle so we can focus on on the birth of the Christ child the incarnate word yeah are there any other details related to Jesus's birth uh, that also would be things that 
maybe a lot of Christians would assume are the case based on Christmas carols or just the way we tend to tell the story that aren't necessarily supported in the text? Certainly, for instance, the, uh, you know, animals are not explicitly mentioned. Uh, also, the, the idea of wise men being right there at the manger is 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 something that's not really supported uh, when uh, by a close reading of of the text, because uh, uh, in scripture it, it appears that uh, when the wise men actually arrive, uh, Jesus is no longer called an infant; he's called a child, and uh, at that time, it says that Mary and Joseph and uh, Jesus live in a house, uh, no longer in a, a room in the back of a stable, if you will. So those would be just some of the misconceptions. Of course, uh, we don't know how many wise men came. Uh, they were probably uh, not the three kings uh, from Orient, but uh, astrologers and and uh, you know wise men, and uh, probably in in Persia or Babylon. So. Uh, there's a, any number of corrections, perhaps, or of cautions when we read the, uh, the, the birth narratives in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. Hmm. Yeah, what do we know about the wise men? I think, for myself at least, it's, that part of the story has always been a little bit odd. Like, how did these guys find out about Jesus' birth, and what, would they have, what were they thinking they were coming to see uh, what do we know about their motives in coming and, and who they were? Well, um, we don't know uh, maybe as much as we would like to know. Uh, of course, the story of the wise men is recounted in Matthew chapter 2, uh, not even in any of the other Gospels. And uh, I think what's really interesting is that uh, that story is uh, part of Matthew's story of, of Jesus coming, of uh, his birth, his ministry, his his uh, death and resurrection. And this is the first hint in the gospel that Jesus, uh, yes, he was born in Bethlehem in Judea, but his coming had relevance for all people, uh, including uh, non-Jewish people like those wise men. And so there's really a neat uh, inclusion, if you will, uh, between the wise men on the front end of Matthew's story and then the Great Commission at the end the famous Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, which uh, where Jesus commissions uh, his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And so Matthew, very early in the story, uh, gives us a sense of, of here are several men, certainly of stature in their own culture, uh, who uh, make that long journey uh, to Bethlehem. Uh, because their research indicated that a king, you know, was born. And uh, uh, one thing in, in, in my study of and close reading of that account that I was uh, intrigued by is that there seemed to be certain echoes of the Queen of Sheba's visit to King Solomon in Old Testament times, in the glory days of of, you know, David's and, and, and Solomon's uh, kingdom. And so there seemed to be a bit of an echo here again, uh, someone makes that long pilgrimage to to the Holy Land from far away uh, because of, of of something momentous having occurred uh, in Israel. How would you respond to you know maybe the more liberal, non-Christian side of scholars who would say, you know, these aren't prophecies that are being fulfilled. These are these are early followers of Jesus. You know, trying to then kind of go back and 
add details to the story that might not be historically accurate, but sort of make all these connections to the Old Testament, you know, as a, as a way of sort of retroactively fitting him into this Messiah mold. Well, uh, first of all, of course, the, uh, the Old Testament that, that we have um, clearly, uh, you know, and verifiably predates uh, the Christian era. So, for instance, the famous Dead Sea Scrolls and the manuscripts found at, at Qumran uh, near the Dead Sea, uh, we actually have uh, copies of uh, the book of Isaiah, the famous Isaiah scroll that is uh, displayed in, in Jerusalem in in a museum there, uh, and that dates from uh, about 100, 150 years before Christ. So in other words, we know that uh, the book of Isaiah authentically predicts, for instance, in chapter uh, 53, the suffering servant, and gives quite a bit of detail about, you know, the tomb that uh, Jesus would be buried in and, and the way that he would suffer uh, for the sins of the people, and the same with some of the other prophetic books I mentioned, like Micah, for example. I think the other thing would be that uh, Matthew in particular has this long series of fulfillment quotations, and the other Gospels do the same, uh, Gospel of John, for example. And so uh, the sheer uh, number of demonstrable uh, components of fulfillment uh, in every detail of Jesus' life. It's almost like Matthew writes his gospel to counteract uh, what you described as a more maybe liberal, uh, you know, uh, charge that Christians just retroactively, you know, made all the details fit. It's almost like Matthew wrote his gospel to counter that by showing that this is not just a handful of predictions that were fulfilled, but uh, many dozen fulfillments all converged, especially at the birth and then later on at the crucifixion. You mentioned Herod and the, the the murder of the innocents, as is often referred to, this this really horrific story of him ordering the the execution of all male children under the age of two. Do we have any other extra biblical historical evidence of that massacre? It seems like something that would be uh, maybe reported elsewhere, just in the scale of how how horrific that must have been. Uh, what do we What do we know about that? Well, uh, I don't think we have any extra biblical information about this, and I think there is. Uh, couple things that would be important here, one being that uh, Herod uh, had a long uh, history of uh, violence and brutality, and so for him, this would have been very much in character. Um, he was ruthless in killing off any potential rivals uh, to his throne. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a saying in his day that it was better to be his pig than to be his son. And uh, there's a, a wordplay there in the original language uh, because the, the words for pig and son uh, sound similar. But uh, the difference being that his pigs, you might have a chance of being allowed to live at least for a little while. But uh, he was so brutal uh, that he would even kill his own sons. And he did kill several of his sons just uh, when he got suspicious that they would have designs on his throne. So uh, clearly, uh, this would have been just the kind of thing that you would have expected him to do to eradicate any potential threat to his throne because he didn't understand the spiritual nature of Jesus' um, 
kingdom, the way Jesus later uh, told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. He, he thought of uh, the king of the Jews as an earthly king that would, would seek to replace him. Uh, Herod was a, uh, an Edomite, which was a mixed race, and so he already had a bit of a chip on his shoulder because uh, he, you know, he was a, a bit of a hybrid, if you will, that neither the Romans nor the, the Jews uh, fully respected and and recognized. The other thing that I might add is that uh, Bethlehem was a was a small village in that day, and so there would have been a limited number of uh, male children uh, two years uh, old or under that would have been slaughtered. Of course, not to take anything away from the atrocity of 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 of, of uh, the killing. But uh, scholars have speculated there might have been a dozen or perhaps two of, uh, of babies that, that, that would have been slaughtered. Um, so even there, the, the scale of the killing would have been such that it, uh, given who it was who perpetrated it, uh, Herod, who was known for his, uh, for his atrocities, it, it might not have made the headlines of the national news in that day. And then what do we know about uh, the time that Jesus and his family spent then in Egypt um, not just from a sort of events timeline sort of perspective, but there seems to be a lot of uh, theological and spiritual significance to Jesus being in Egypt for a time. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, it's significant because, of course, uh, Israel was in bondage in Egypt um, uh, in Old Testament times, and uh, the the famous Exodus, uh, God leading uh, His people through Moses, uh, Moses going to Pharaoh saying, "Let my people go," and then eventually uh, the Passover was celebrated the night before the Exodus. So, uh, it's hard to overstate the importance of of the Exodus in as part of Israel's own uh, national history, and so Hosea. When he wrote about this, he made the statement, out of Egypt, I called my son. Of course, son in Hosea's day being initially uh, the nation of Israel that was collectively referred to as God's son. But Matthew sees in that same statement also a prophecy that in addition to referring back to Israel, also refers forward to the coming Messiah, who of course was God's son, par excellence, the, the Son of God. And so uh, Matthew then sees in the fact that Jesus's parents took him briefly down to Egypt to escape from Herod, uh, a fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy. Mm. Yeah, it's so fascinating to see all of those connections. And I think that's one, uh, the, the angle of prophecy is one that is often misunderstood and can be a little bit confusing. What would you say in your experience are some of the misconceptions that Christians often have about the nature of prophecies related to Jesus that we might find in the Old Testament? One would be that there's only one way that prophecy could be fulfilled by way of direct prediction and then fulfillment. Uh, and that is one of the the ways, uh, probably the major way, for example, uh, when Micah predicts that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, well, Jesus was demonstrably born in Bethlehem. So there you could say, well, 
Micah predicted it, and it was fulfilled in that Jesus really was uh, born in Bethlehem. In other words, if Jesus had been born anywhere else, then that prophecy would have been falsified and not been uh, fulfilled. So that's very important. But in addition to that, there's many other ways the Old Testament uh, uh, Old Testament prophecy worked. Another one would be that of typology. And I just alluded to that in Hosea. So there would be certain patterns uh, or broader ideas that prophets uh, talked about, such as that, that God redeemed his people from bondage, that then in a maybe escalated or even more spiritual sense, uh, God in Jesus came to redeem his people, all of us, from our bondage, not to Egypt, but to sin when he died for us on the cross. And so in my teaching, I love to uh, explain the idea of typology and how it works. There is a type in the Old Testament, uh, an original pattern or matrix of events that is then fulfilled in an escalated or even deeper sense uh, in and through Jesus. So what was going on with the star? I think that's a detail in the story that is often puzzled or fascinated Christians as we think about whether miraculous things going on there, or is that some kind of natural astronomical phenomenon? What would you say about uh, what was going on? Well, uh, I think, um, again, we have less than absolute certainty. There's a certain uh, mystery that uh, attaches to that. Of course, uh, the Messiah is called a star in uh, the Old Testament. And so certainly there is there's this metaphorical dimension, but in addition, there clearly seem to have been some some astronomical uh, phenomenon going on uh, in Jesus' day that that uh, that resonates with the fact that you know wise men or in the original language. Uh, Magoi, uh, you know, we get the term magician from that, but but I think it was not so much a matter of magic. Uh, in the ancient world, is more the idea of, of people who explored the deeper mysteries of the universe, including the constellation of the stars. So this is part of their identity, and so so God apparently used some astronomical phenomenon to 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 show them the way to to guide them uh, to the Holy Land. So another question that I think Christians might often have relates to the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. And I think we all we all have a sense of the importance of the doctrine. It's a pretty central doctrine of the Christian faith, one that you know has been central since the very beginning. Um, and yet sometimes it's there's a little bit of confusion maybe or a lack of certainty on why it's so important that Jesus was born of a virgin. Um, so not even not even just that he was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, but that he was born of a virgin uh, first and foremost. What would you say to that? Yes, I think this is absolutely essential for the Christian faith to understand that in order for Jesus to die for our sins on the cross, he had to be not only fully God and fully a man, but that he had to be um, born uh sinless uh, without uh, going uh, 
you know, on his father's side through the Adamic line, uh, because ever since the fall, um, you know, as David says, in sin, my mother conceived me. So the idea that Jesus's human nature was not tainted by by sin. Um, Paul talks about that in the book of Romans as well, the, the importance that, that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but, but he himself uh, was not a sinner in his, in his human nature. And, uh, and this enabled him to, to die not for his own sin, as he would have had to if, if he was a sinner himself, but he was able to give his sinless life for our sins. And so uh, I think it's a great opportunity at Christmas for us to articulate uh, the nature of our salvation and, and, and how it is that the incarnation is, is absolutely essential uh, for our salvation. So a term that's often thrown about related to the incarnation and Jesus's birth that I think might sound a little intimidating, maybe some Christians might uh, not be super familiar with, is the hypostatic union. Can you break that down for uh, for listeners? How would you uh, explain what that means and why that's an important doctrine to hold to? Well, yes. So there's uh, some very important uh, theological uh, doctrines that were formulated in the centuries following uh, the birth of Christ. Um, of course, that's not a term you would find in, in Matthew's or Luke's birth narratives themselves, but it is a very reasonable um, way of, of putting all the data together about uh, who Jesus was and the idea being, as John tells us, we haven't talked about John's gospel yet, but but John tells us that Jesus was the the preexistent Word who eternally uh, existed with God uh, from all eternity, even prior to creation. And it is that Word that became flesh in Jesus. And so we see here this idea that Jesus was one person uh, with two natures, a divine and a human nature. And uh, so he's both fully God and fully man. Uh, think of the Gospel of John, for example. On the one hand, uh, there is a very strong, uh, repeated uh, claims being made that that Jesus was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was uh, with God. The Word was God. Uh, and then repeatedly, the the Jewish authorities pick up stones to stone Jesus. They understand that he claimed to be to be God. And yet, at the same time, you see Jesus' humanity on full display in the in the Gospel. Jesus is tired. He sits down at the well. Uh, he's thirsty. Uh, and uh, so we see that Jesus combined uh, both deity and humanity in himself. The only uh, unique person for whom that could ever be said. Even God the Father did not come to earth and, and, uh, and take on flesh, uh, nor did the Holy Spirit. So even within the Trinity, Jesus' nature and mission is unique in that regard. Yeah, I think sometimes when we think about Jesus's human nature, you mentioned things like getting tired or needing to drink. Um, I think sometimes we almost can think of it as like he was he was play acting. He was sort of uh, doing those things, maybe just for our benefit, but not really because he needed to, because God doesn't need to sleep and God doesn't need to eat and drink water. Uh, and even even when it comes to his death, 
it can be hard for us to imagine um, how that happened and not have been just sort of an act that Jesus was was doing. So I, I wonder, explain uh, why it is that that wasn't just an act that, uh, and why it's important that it wasn't just sort of uh, play acting on his part. Yes, uh, and clearly here we're getting into fairly deep waters theologically, and then humanly speaking, it, it might be hard for our finite minds to understand uh, how Jesus could could genuinely uh, thirst or hunger and yet be God, who of course um, is, is is spirit and and uh, never tires and so forth. But uh, uh, Scripture indicates that it was possible for Jesus to be genuinely tempted, for example, uh, and yet to not succumb to temptation or to uh, you know. And we Book of Hebrews chapter two talks about this, or you have other other places in Scripture that that affirm that 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 Jesus um, uh, was tempted and 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 yet uh, never sinned, or that uh, that Jesus humbled himself uh, or emptied himself, as as Paul writes in in Philippians two, uh, which I take to mean that he chose not to exercise his divine rights and prerogatives while on earth. So Jesus had uh, divine, uh, supernatural insight and knowledge, but he could choose not to exercise that. For example, uh, he said that no one knows the time when he comes, uh, only the Father, not even the Son. Well, on a divine level, of course he knew, but he could choose not to exercise those divine rights and prerogatives. I think that's what Paul means in Philippians 2 when he talks about uh, Jesus emptying himself. All right, maybe a last question. Uh, what's one of your favorite Christmas carols? And then what's one of your least favorite Christmas carols? And explain both of those. Well, uh, that's a, uh, an easy choice as far as the uh, the least favorite one is concerned. That would have to uh, be the drummer boy. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I just can't see for the life of me how uh you know that could possibly be have any any relationship to the the birth story uh, of course i grew up in austria and so to me uh, i was introduced to some of those christmas carols when i when i first came to this country in my 20s and i remember hearing that one and and i was always uh, just cringing when i when i when i hear the the lyrics uh to that one uh the the most favored one, that's a bit of a tougher choice because I love so so many of them. I think uh, uh, people in the United States, uh, North America, uh, sometimes maybe don't even realize how blessed they are that, that there's just so many carols that are so deeply uh, saturated with, with sound theology. Um, and so whether it's uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing or Joy to the World or, or you know, uh, away in a manger. Uh, there's so many uh, wonderful cares. Probably my favorite, uh, just partly because of the, the real beautiful uh, you know, music to it, would be Ho uh, O Holy Night. I just uh, love the almost, uh, almost seems to have elements of opera or if, you know, it's just a, more than a carol. It's just a beautiful uh, hymn, if you will. So um, that would have to be my favorite. Well, Andreas, thank you so much for spending some time talking with us today and for helping us understand just a little bit better Jesus's birth and what actually happened all those years ago. 
Uh, thanks for taking the time. You're very welcome. That was Andreas Kostenberger on distinguishing fact from fiction when it comes to the birth of Jesus. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The First Days of Jesus, The Story of the Incarnation, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.